BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 76, Into El Dorado. Before we switched our focus down to Peru and Pizarro's conquests down there, you might remember that we spent the bulk of our time looking at what was happening in the Caribbean and the coastline which surrounded it, all the way from Florida down to Venezuela and Guyana. This was the centre of Spanish activity. For the next few episodes, we're going to be moving back up there, specifically to that northern part of South America, today's Venezuela and Colombia. Before starting that, however, I wanted to mention a piece of research which has just come out, which I hope you'll find as interesting as I do. In the very first episode of this podcast, we looked at the theories around how the Americas were first populated, and we discussed how the previous commonly accepted wisdom was starting to come under attack from new evidence. This research very much continues that theme. The evidence it examines consists of a number of pieces of jewellery, which after careful analysis they have concluded are man-made, and which were made from the bones of a species of giant sloth, which is now extinct obviously, but which used to exist in South America. As this sloth went extinct long before the roughly 15,000 years that it was previously thought humans had arrived in the Americas, it stands to reason that humans must have been in South America long before it was thought that they first arrived. We could be talking between 25 and 27,000 years ago. The reason I find this subject so fascinating is because, although all this new evidence which is coming to light contradicts the previously held theories, it doesn't provide concrete information 
about when exactly people did arrive in the Americas and how they got there. So it's very much an open and ongoing question. Hopefully the finds will keep appearing and one day we will be able to answer these questions. If you want to read more about this research, I will put links to it on the Facebook and Twitter pages. Around a year ago, in the Colombian capital, Bogota, I spent an afternoon looking around its famous gold museum. If you ever have a chance, you should definitely go. It's full of intricate pieces of pre-Hispanic metalwork, which were made by ethnic groups all over the country. There are masks, headbands, figurines and pendants, all made from the metal which the Spanish so desperately craved. As well as giving you a chance to see these amazing artefacts, the museum puts into context just how many different civilizations there were in what is now Colombia, and gives an overview of where each one was and how they had adapted to their environments. Colombia, it is clear, has always had rich supplies of gold. The people who inhabited the region where Bogotá is today were the Muisca. Not far from the city is Lake Guatavita, one of their most important places. Its water fills a crater, which looks like a volcano or a meteorite impact, but was probably formed by a sinkhole. Here the Muisca are said to have conducted a ritual in which one of their chiefs would be covered in gold dust and would dive from a raft into the lake to be washed by its waters. According to the Spanish chronicler who wrote about this ritual, pieces of gold jewellery were thrown in afterwards, though to date not much has been found. The story goes that this was a symbolic reconstruction of an episode in which the wife of one of the Muisca chiefs drowned herself in the lake, with the chief diving in to try to save her. Probably the most spectacular piece in the gold museum depicts this ritual. This piece of sculpture depicts the chief, accompanied by seven other people, atop a flat woven raft. All of it is made from worked threads of gold. The El Dorado myth has come to refer to a lost city of gold, a place built from the stuff, which would make its discoverer rich. If you translate El Dorado from Spanish, however, it does not mean the golden place or anything like that. It means the golden one, as in a person. The myth has its origins at Lake Guatavita, and El Dorado probably originally referred to the Muisca chief, painted in gold dust. We will come back to the El Dorado myth many times in the future. There will be repeated treks to remote, unknown places by conquistadors. Having been seduced by it, they set off on doomed and sometimes violent adventures. If these conquistadors had realised that they had already reached El Dorado by conquering the Muisca and Lake Guatavita, or at least the closest thing to it that could be said to exist, they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble. Today, we begin to tell the story of that conquest, of the Spanish incursions into Colombia. Of course, at this point, before they had entered the country, they had not yet invented the concept of El Dorado. 
After finding out just how much precious metal the Inca possessed, there were always rumours of another city as rich as Cusco, waiting for an ambitious Spaniard to find. But this was not specifically what drew the Spanish into Colombia. We have seen that Pizarro's conquests in Peru and Ecuador were separated from the rest of the Spanish Empire by roughly the length of the modern country from north to south, a distance of over a thousand kilometres. Everyone who entered, which by now was a lot of people, came by boat down the Pacific coast, and everything which was shipped in and out had to go that way as well. From the point of view of the Spanish, this needed resolving. Peru had almost immediately become one of the two most important provinces in the empire, along with Mexico, yet it was an isolated island. Even if they had no reason to believe that they would find a rich new Inca empire to conquer, for the individual Spaniards who set out to complete the task, the motivation was obvious. We've already met one of them, Belalcazar, who, while possessing a high rank in Pizarro's army, was only able to advance and enrich himself as much as Pizarro allowed. He wanted to do what Pizarro had done, and strike out on his own to create his own personal territory. He was not the first, however, and so before looking at his story, we need to go back in time a bit, and begin with the expedition of Pedro de Heredia. It's been quite a long time since we told the story of the first attempts to colonise the Colombian coast. You might remember a couple of aborted attempts to found cities there, and the obligatory inter-Spanish fighting contributing to their abandonment. Their focus had moved around the coast to Panama, and so Santa Marta was the only fledgling city which had survived. If you want to remind yourself of that story in full, you can find it in episodes 30 to 33. The upshot of that conflict was that Rodrigo de Bastidas ended up in control of the colony and based himself in Santa Marta. We are of course talking in relative terms here, but by the low standards of his contemporaries, Bastidas appears to have been relatively enlightened when it came to his interactions with the indigenous people he encountered. Perhaps this is why he seems to have made no real attempt to expand the colony much beyond the city. While pretty much every other conquistador we have met rushed to secure as much territory as possible, he, for whatever reason, didn't. He did, however, obtain a large amount of gold through trade, and as he prohibited the other Spaniards from raiding the indigenous people, this inspired in them quite a bit of jealousy. In 1527 he was attacked in his sleep, and although he managed to make it out onto a boat and set sail for Santo Domingo, he got diverted to Cuba because of bad weather, and he died not long after he had landed there. What happened to his gold is unclear. Santa Marta then needed a new governor, and this is where Pedro de Heredia enters the story. He was not named governor, the position went to a man called Vadil, but he was second in command. Unfortunately, as is so often the case with these lesser-known episodes, sources are hard to find, and details are scarce. It seems that not long after arriving, Vadil, and possibly Heredia, 
were involved in some sort of dispute with a Spaniard named Palomino. Not far up the coast from Santa Marta, in a beautiful spot which I also recommend visiting if you get the chance, Palomino was drowned in a river. Today the river and the beach town which runs alongside it are named after him. Padillo was recalled to Santo Domingo to account for Palomino's death, and what became of him is unclear. We do know that he apparently did not return, and this meant that Heredia now had control of the colony. Unlike Bastidas, Heredia had expansionist ambitions. He began by sailing westwards along the coast, to a large bay whose natural features made it the perfect place to build a port. A few days ago, I arrived back in Bogota, Colombia. I'm delighted to be back in Latin America, surrounded by all the sights and sounds I love. It's been a while since I was here, though, and my Spanish has become a little rusty. Have you ever learned a language for a trip abroad, to connect with family and friends, or simply just for the fun of it? You might know what I mean. To help get me back up to scratch, I've been using Rosetta Stone. It's been perfect for this, allowing me to pick up at the level that I'm at, rather than starting from the beginning. And as it's available on both desktop and as an app on my phone, and lessons can be downloaded for use when not connected to the internet, I've been able to make use of time spent on planes and buses. I've already noticed a difference as I engage in conversations with locals and navigate everyday interactions in shops, restaurants and museums. Its true accent speech recognition feature has helped me to perfect my pronunciation and encouraged me to think in Spanish as well as just attempting to speak it. Over 30 years, Rosetta Stone has perfected its language learning method to create a program which is immersive, intuitive, and designed to promote long-term retention. It's also great value, with its current half-price membership giving you access to 25 languages for life. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Latin American History Podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This was the territory of the Mokona, and they resisted Eridia's incursions. But he managed to drive them back and take control of the area. He founded a city and called it Cartagena, after a town in Spain which occupied a similar bay. Cartagena will become one of the most important cities in the Spanish Empire. Much later, alternative ports such as Buenos Aires will increase in prominence, but for much of the colonial era, almost everything which entered and exited Spanish South America went through Cartagena including the silver of Peru and Bolivia, and the famous treasure fleets which shipped it all back to Spain, and which later on will help fuel the growth of piracy in the Caribbean. This position made Cartagena rich, and even today the mansions and churches, built within its walled old town, using this wealth, make it one of the most spectacular cities you can visit in Latin America. All of this is in the future, however, for now, it was simply Eridia's new base of operations. He quickly moved out into the surrounding region to found more towns. First was Turbaco, 20 kilometers inland from Cartagena. Next was Tolu, a bit further along the coast. As he dispossessed the indigenous groups he encountered, increasingly large amounts of gold started coming into his hands, in the form of beautiful statues like those in the Gold Museum today. Unfortunately, he melted them down and converted them into wealth, both for himself and to pay his soldiers. Soon he was setting his sights further afield, and he decided to launch an expedition inland. He carried on along the coast to the Sinu River, and here he found an indigenous graveyard. He broke open the tombs there, looking for gold and amongst other things, found a solid gold porcupine. After this he turned inland, into what is now the department of Antioquia. His aim was to reach the Pacific, so that a route which led there could be established, and his Caribbean coastal settlements could be connected to Peru. He reached the very top of the Andes, the most northern part of Colombia's western cordillera, but he found himself under-equipped to trek up and over it. Having already plundered a reasonable amount of gold, he decided to return to Cartagena. When he arrived back there, he found two people waiting for him. The first was his brother, Alonso, who had been in Guatemala. The second was a bishop, who the king had sent to take up the position of lieutenant general. Heredia refused to allow the bishop to assume his duties. Instead, reassigning the job to his brother. Again, details are scarce, but it seemed that this may have contributed to the troubles he was about to face. He sent Alonso off to explore the interior some more. Alonso followed the Atrato River into the jungles of Chocó, near the Pacific coast, and he also followed the Sinu, southwards until he reached the Rio Cauca, Colombia's second most important river. This meant that he had almost reached today's border with Ecuador, and the area at the very north of Pizarro's conquests. 
Potentially, this could have meant establishing an overland route there. Not knowing this, however, he seems to have turned back, and although it was useful to have explored this far south, he made no attempt to colonise. He did, however, found the town of Mompox, part of the way down the Magdalena River. I'm full of recommendations today, but Mompox is another place which if you have the chance to go to, I would say do it, especially if you're interested in history. It was built to facilitate movement and trade along the Magdalena. This was a piece of foresight from Alonso, as the river would become extremely important for these purposes, and Mompox would retain its control over these things for centuries. Like Cartagena, its population grew rich, and although on nowhere near the same scale, they also built beautiful mansions in which to live. Now it's almost forgotten about, and stranded in the midst of a huge network of Louisiana-style bayous. Today it's like a strange lost museum, where Gabriel Garcia Marquez chose to set some of his novels, and most travel is done by boat rather than road. While Alonso was exploring and laying the groundwork for future Spanish expansion, Heredia was facing legal trouble. The government of Santo Domingo had appointed a judge to visit Cartagena and investigate him. Incidentally, once again proving that the establishment of the Spanish Empire was very much a nepotistic family affair conducted by a small group of connected people. The judge just so happened to be named Vadillo. He was a relative of the Vadillo we met earlier. The charges related to accusations that Heredia was mistreating the indigenous people. This was true, but so was everyone else, and it's unclear if his actions were particularly bad, and also that he was not making the agreed payments to other Spaniards for land he had bought off them. This is something I can find no details about. Because of this lack of information, this is partially speculation, but I suspect that his refusal to let the king's representative take the position he'd been given may have influenced the decision to come down on Heredia in particular. The investigating judge came to a guilty verdict, but he gave Heredia the right to go back to Spain and defend himself from the charges in person. Heredia took this opportunity, and after a second trial in Spain, he was acquitted. Heredia's most important action, then, was to found Cartagena, but the expeditions which he and his brother carried out enabled other Spaniards to launch their own. He was the first European to venture into the interior of Colombia, and so in the grand scheme of the country's history, he has to occupy an important place. As he was on his way back to Spain, one of these new expeditions was just beginning. While he was eventually cleared of his charges, the initial guilty judgment of the second Vadillo meant that Heredia's control of Santa Marta, and with it Cartagena, was taken off him. Sensing an opportunity, a man named Pedro Fernandez de Lugo used his considerable influence to secure the colony for himself. Lugo was a powerful man. Up until that point, he had governed the Canary Islands, and he had built a reputation for himself by fighting for both the Spanish and the Portuguese 
in their wars against the Berbers in Morocco. By this point, at the age of 60, he was too old to be setting off into the unknown. But having obtained financing from Italian bankers, he organised others to do it for him, and he set up the logistics of the operation. The man he chose to lead his conquests was Gonzalo Jimenez de Quesada. Quesada was perhaps a slightly strange choice for the physically demanding task ahead of him. Instead of feats of bravery and exploration, he was known for his intellectual abilities. He was from the south of Spain and had spent his career so far working as a lawyer. One qualification which he did possess, however, was that he was a distant relative of both Hernán Cortés and Francisco Pizarro. He took with him his brother Hernando, who would be his second-in-command. The aim of the expedition was to follow the Magdalena River. Quesada would lead the bulk of his men overland, from Santa Marta to a place called Tamalameque, a bit further upriver from Mompox. Eight ships would also leave from Santa Marta, and they would sail down the coast and then into the river. This way, they would establish that it was possible to get there both overland and by sea down the river. The plan was for them all to meet at Tamala Makeke, and then they would all proceed further upriver. Next episode, we will tell this story and have a look at what Bel Alcazar was up to. If you've enjoyed this episode and the series as a whole, I'd really appreciate it if you could just take a couple of minutes to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps the show grow. Thank you to everyone who's done this already. If you've really, really enjoyed it, it's possible to leave a small donation to help cover the costs involved in making the podcast. Details about how to do so are in the show notes. A massive thank you to everyone who's done this already. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening.